Happy Tony's Weekend, everybody, and welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. This will be Broadway Radio's third annual Tony Omnibus episode, in which we look to fill in some of the gaps that have popped up in the theater community's coverage of the awards season. So often our focus during this five-week build-up to Sunday night ceremony is on the performers and the writers who are front and center during the process. However, today we are going to talk to two Tony nominees whose impact on their shows are no less important than the people we see in the media every day, despite the fact that they aren't the ones getting the glossy stories in the New York and theatrical media. We are going to start with Susan Vargo, the executive producer of live entertainment for Nickelodeon. She has been the creative force driving what became the SpongeBob SquarePants musical from its inception almost a decade ago to being the most nominated musical of the season. Then we'll talk to 2016 Tony winner Clint Ramos, who was nominated again this season for his incredibly nuanced and evolving work as the costume designer for the revival of Once on this Island. Then finally, we will talk to Victoria Myers, the editor-in-chief of online theatrical publication The Interval. For nearly four years, the site has been doing exemplary work of amplifying the voices and work of women in the theater. And then as we close out the episode, I will run through my predictions for some of the biggest awards of the night. So without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Susan Vargo comes from the theatrical world, but most of the live entertainment that Nickelodeon is involved in is more of the family-focused spectacle variety, rather than pieces created for the actual theatrical stage. So I started our conversation by asking her just where in the world did the idea to take SpongeBob SquarePants of all characters and turn it into a Broadway musical come from? So we're getting ready to celebrate the uh, 20th anniversary of SpongeBob, I believe, in late 2019, 2020. And this show, which definitely tells you how long it's been gestating, (laughs) uh, germinating, started in the kind of corporate conversations about celebrating the 10th anniversary of SpongeBob. Oh, okay. Um, And and it was one of those kind of roundtable, where aren't we with this kind of cultural icon that we could be. And someone just threw out, oh, well, how about Broadway? Um, and it kickstarted what was really a fascinating creative process where we never were given a deadline to do the show. It was, um, I, I say we had a mission statement from the president of the, of the network, which was find me something that will be um, exciting and innovative and surprising to any SpongeBob fan and we'll keep looking at it and keep developing it. So for the first, I'd say, six or seven years of development of the show, we didn't know if we were ever ever going to actually do it. And I think for someone like Tina, who um, loves to experiment, it was really freeing for her because she could just see what would happen. Um, And it it kind of came about from a, a vision first point of view. So we didn't look for writers. We didn't look for story. We looked for an artist who would create, would bring um, interesting ideas of how and why to do it on stage primarily. So I created three different lists of three different types of directors. And we just um, went out to lots of different people and took three different pitches from three different directors. Oh, that's and fascinating. Tina's, yeah. Tina's quickly rose to the top. Um, no C pun intended. <laughs> um, and so they were basically, we looked for like a very, very traditional musical theater jazz hands director. We looked for um, kind of a, a circus event hybrid director. And then kind of where Tina fell into the world of in, indie avant-garde directors. 
Um, And most of what you see on stage now comes from her initial kind of five or six pronged pitch to us over 10 years ago. Yep. Almost every single piece of it. Wow. Um, And then, and that's really that, that's how the development process kind of fell, fell forward is that we took each individual idea she had and developed it and then kind of went forward to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage. As someone who I'm I'm at the, I'm in my mid to late ish thirties. So I kind of missed the SpongeBob generation of when that was on for kids. So I, what I kind of know about the cartoon is secondhand, but it seems like from what I know of the show that having a director like Tina, who is, like you said, avant-garde and kind of thinks outside of the traditional box, even though what that looks like might be different than what was seen on, you know, or is still seen on screen might be very different. It does seem to have the same kind of DNA as to what the cartoon version of SpongeBob has always been. Yeah, it, it, it was it was always what what is in the DNA and what is necessary to be surprising and embracing of the SpongeBob brand and the SpongeBob sensibility yet make it a wholly new, exciting theatrical experience, which answers the question, why be on Broadway, right? Because the, yeah. there's no reason with a brand like this, the risk to the brand is worse by, not doing, by doing something bad, right. frankly, <laughs> than not doing something at all. And I think that was, that was the point of view from us, from, from above us on, on creating it was bring me something that I can 100% stand behind and say, I think this is completely innovative and creative and an exciting way to use it as opposed to something that's a literal translation of what you see anywhere else. And that you can get, frankly, on DVD or, or stream or in your, in your front room for free any minute of any day. And that, that has, has created its own special, special brand of, of marketing challenges because we've, we've created a show that doesn't really look like what you expect it to look like, that doesn't sound like what you expect it to sound like, that doesn't have a story that you know. Um, we kind of we went in every opposite direction from what the other kind of adaptations of these kinds of brands have come before us, but I think that's what makes it so unique on stage and so exciting on stage. Well, and I want to I want to get to what is so exciting and, and unique on stage. But there's like you said, there's been a quite a long uh, process to get to that point. So my one question, you said that you said that Tina's vision had you know five prongs and what we see on stage now is pretty much what that was. So I guess the question is. What took so long then? If you had that kind of basis um, for the show and that ended up being what it was uh, ended up seeing on stage, what was that development process? What went into creating this for almost 10 years before it actually ended up on Broadway? We wanted to make sure each of them worked. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, So the first one was the idea that the, the relationships between characters, both on TV and in the movies and now on stage, are it's it's a it's a buddy comedy right it's abbott and costello it's laurel and hardy so can humans inhabit what are these two dimensional characters of a of a sea star and a sponge can you believe them can you build on these relationships to sustain emotional connection across this long two-hour evening, longer than obviously 11 minutes or 22 minutes or 90 minutes of a film. And do you buy into it? Do you believe it? Do you want to spend the time with them? So our first, our first creative step for probably the first year was just convincing ourselves that humans could do this. So we, we had a movement workshop, which was 
a room full of clowns and um, dancers and actors and no script. We had no script. We had no music. We had nothing. It was can humans be these characters? And can you, through physical comedy and through bits and through dance and through movement, live in this world? And that first lab situation is actually where we found Ethan and Danny, both of them, who still to this day yeah. play SpongeBob and Patrick. And Ethan was a sophomore at Vassar, and Danny, I think, had just graduated from, from college. So they've been with us for, for a pretty long, long time. So that's, I think, going on six-ish years now. Um, and obviously the first year and a bit was, was doing the dog and pony show of Tina is the person. Let's, let's make this happen. Um, and then coming out of that, yeah, hey, yeah, these people can really be these characters. Now what are we going to do? Let's figure out what story we're going to tell. And we wanted to tell an entirely new story. And that's how we got to Kyle. Um, and then Kyle and Tina pitched three different story ideas. You know, what should this be? And we went back and we worked not only internally at Nickelodeon, but we also went and talked to the TV team and Kyle and Tina went out to LA and we spent some time with them and how the storyboard artists and how the, how the quote unquote writers, because they write visually, I say quote unquote, they don't actually write scripts. They write visually almost like yeah. uh, comic books and they, they write visual gags and that's how they, they create the TV show or did at the time. Um, so then we got, we, we decided what story we were going to tell and then we did 50% of that. And we did a, a little bit of a lab about what, what do, what does, what, what is the storytelling? The, the music. So that's kind of two of two of the five. So actors as actors, brand new story. And then this crazy cockamamie, Hey, let's have every song written by yeah. somebody different. Um, and that took us a while to pull together. So we would get, you know, one song at a time. We would walk through, walk the artists through what we needed them to do. The first kind of presentation, I think three or four years into the process, we only had 50% of the score. And that's the point where, where Tom Kidd, I think, joined the, joined the team is, you know, how do we make these things all work together? And does it work if you have six songs that are by completely different people? If we do a five-person orchestration of them, do they sound like they're the same same score, yeah. but with the flavor of each individual individual artist. And we said, okay, yeah, they do. It, we can do that. Let's get the rest of the score put together. And then we finally put it on its feet. We, we got David Zinn involved. We got all of the design. And David actually was, was involved earlier than that because the immersive quality of what Tina wanted to do was also one of these basic tenants and part of part of the process early on. So we created, every time we would do a presentation for anyone, whether it's a Nickelodeon or the TV team or anyone anywhere, we would have an element of kind of art installation design to the room itself. Oh, so you cool. felt felt that, that that feeling that you get in the theater, just of being underwater and being part of the community. Um, so yeah, we, we picked them off in individually over a course of, you know, the course <laughs> of those, those number of years. Yeah. Well, and, and what, uh, you mentioned trying to get all of these disparate artists together who have very different sounds and sensibilities to work in a score cohesively. And I would imagine, as you mentioned, Tom Kitt had a lot to do with making that happen. Because one of the things when I saw the show, I knew it intellectually, but it didn't really occur to me while I was watching the show until afterwards. I was like, oh, yeah, there's like 57 people who wrote songs for this show. <laughs> and it sounds and, and honestly, if you would have told me that one person wrote the book and the score altogether, I would have believed it because it just felt like it all lived together. How important was someone like Tom Kitt, you know, to to arrange and to orchestrate and, and just supervise all of that music and trying to make this thing that really isn't done very much on Broadway seem cohesive and natural. Uh, we couldn't have done it without him. 
and and he's kind of one of a very few handful of people yeah. who understands how they fit collaboratively in the process in general and this process specifically. I mean, his experience on Green Day was uh, on American Idiot with Green Day was so important to to doing this because he has, um, and I think it's what he's going to be doing so brilliantly on Jagged Little Pill is that he understands the how to honor an artist who exists and their sound and their voice and their sensibility, but also how it needs to translate for sustaining an evening of, of theater. And I think what, what people also don't realize is how much of his own composition is underneath as incidental music and traveling mm. music and what really creates taking motifs from one song to another and creating the holistic sound. And it was, a, it was also a balancing act is finding how can you maintain the integrity of knowing that that's the Lady Antebellum song and what they sound like, <laughs> but it also works within the score? Um, and we were very, very specific dramaturgically about song spotting originally and putting into because we did an outline first once we chose the song, uh, once we chose the storyline of song spotting in general for any musical, but then stylistically and from a genre point of view, right, what right, needs right. to fit where, and we would make very short lists of composer lyricists. And the great thing is because we were talking about a, a show which is a sensibility and a spirit, a lot of the artists are fans themselves or have kids who are fans, so they knew there wasn't a steep learning curve on what is SpongeBob, yeah. and they all brought their SpongeBob experience to the table when they were writing writing the songs and working with with Tina and Kyle and Tom, um, and we wanted them to write it in their own voices. So we weren't asking them to, you know, what does a They Might Be Giants Broadway song sound like? Although that's what they did, um, yeah. for certainly for that number, but we weren't we were asking them to write like themselves. Um, and I think that was what Tom was able to honor and elevate and create into yeah. one, one great score. And it's also why we recorded the album between Chicago and New York, because right. we, we know that it, it, it's one of our, our partners is Sony Masterworks, and they're a terrific partner in understanding how theater music can support and market a show in addition to being kind of archival. And it was something that we talked about at length about how do we how do we let an audience know that they're in for a real legitimate musical that is made up of all these disparate parts? And we wanted to make a really great album, but we also wanted to honor those artists and, and get out there our music and our particular sound in advance of Broadway. Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the things that from the outside looking in that has probably been one of the, the I would imagine, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but one of the challenges of trying to let people know that this is a legitimate theatrical piece is that people hear SpongeBob and they brush it off as just a kid's comedy and it's a show for kids and it's not really for real theater people or even adults in general if they're not bringing kids. But I think the music and then the, the phenomenal word of mouth that came not only from Chicago, but especially when it came in uh, in previews in New York, has really kind of helped to give some legitimacy to this. Was that something that you guys, obviously, we're talking about the the cast album, um, it was something you were thinking about, but was that something that you anticipated having to overcome when the show finally was in front of a Broadway audience? Well, what's interesting about SpongeBob in general is from day one, 25% of the viewing audience has been adults without children. Hmm. Um, so there has always been an adult following for the television show. So the question was about how do we make a show that is for all SpongeBob fans? 
So not only kids and family fans, current kids and family fans, but adult fans who maybe were kids <laughs> when it started, 10 yeah. 15 Yes, 10 to 15 years ago, but then who are also the adult fans from day one. So we needed to create a a show that ultimately was really close to the DNA of what they love, what everyone loves, and about it being multi-layered on television, Um, and and make that happen every night, eight shows a week in in the theater. And I think that the cross-section of the audience that we get delivers that. We have a very, very um, rabid and loyal social media fan social media engagement from millennials who are those adult fans who might have been kids at the time or the adult adult fans. Um, But yes, I think that our marketing challenge has always been a lot of people automatically say this isn't for me initially. And we have a lot of education that we do and we have had to do from the very beginning to answer those questions in a very limited time frame with a single image or a single radio spot or a single television spot. Um, and it's, it, I think it's something we, we've always been aware of from the very beginning, from even you know, announcing the show, there's been skepticism and questions. So, so yeah, I think, it's, I think every, every choice we've made kind of on how to market the show has been about education first so that people get excited about it and, and think that it, 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 yes, it could indeed be for them. And everything, I think that our maintaining the creative integrity of just trying to make a really great show and not super serve one audience over the other and just Mm. maintain that DNA has been what's helped to make us successful, both from a critical standpoint, from certainly an award standpoint, and from the word of mouth and audience standpoint. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that really benefits your production in terms of showing people that it is a a top rate theatrical production is that your leading man or leading sponge, so to speak is fantastic. And he's, you know, he's up for best actor, uh, in a musical, uh, uh, an award that knock on wood, I think he should win. Um, and you mentioned Ethan's been a part of this show from very early on. Can you just talk about the performance he's giving and not only just as a great performance, but how, physically and vocally difficult that is and why he's the perfect person to do it. Well, um, <laughs> we were, we were giving a creative panel and somebody asked us, we, we formed him from an embryo straight to a sponge for this show. <laughs> and it does perfect. feel like yeah. that. Yeah, it does. It does feel like that at, at, at different, at different points of time. Um, I think that first and foremost, anyone who's part of our company is up for anything and they're game for anything. And they are, they embody kind of the SpongeBob spirit of community and let's put on a great show and whatever I need to do to, to make that happen. Ethan specifically, I think that his personality exudes kind of SpongeBob's exuberance and optimism to start with. So it wasn't that far a leap for him to embody the character the DNA of the character and the spirit of the character um, and understand where he's coming from in, in terms of being emotionally the core of the show, because it's not just the crazy amount of singing and the crazy amount of um, calisthenics and dance and stretch and everything else he's doing, but he actually is the emotional core of what's really a, a story about community and yeah. about the way we react to fear. And if he's not truthful and honest through his entire performance, then it, then it feels 
disingenuous. Um, besides being a, just a terrific actor on his own, um, yeah, he has to sing the you-know-what out of all these <laughs> genres um, and sing, and he's on stage for probably 85% of the show, either holding the stage or reacting to whatever's happening to him. And he's, you know, we call it SpongeBob boot camp. I would call him and say, Hey, we're going to do a, whatever we're going to do this summer. And he's like, okay, back to boot camp. And he just would really buckle down and go to the gym and start his yoga regime again and be, be at the, be at his vocal teacher. And he just really takes, takes it all very, very seriously and is the height of professionalism. And he, he's he's just he's a he's a star in the making in general but he's a star in yeah. this production as well specifically and i'm glad that people are recognizing all the the layers that he's bringing bringing to what what we're asking him to do yeah absolutely well i've just got two real quick questions before i, I sure. send you out and i appreciate your time first off you mentioned he's getting all this recognition but but so is the show the uh, spongebob squarepants tied for the most tony nominations this year and i think if you know some of that goes to the um the word of mouth that we talked about but also probably helps quite a bit in convincing the general public who might have been unsure of this show ahead of time that this is something worth seeing were you surprised uh, uh, did you expect to get this many nominations did you expect this show to be as embraced as it is um and were the did the people at nickelodeon maybe on more of the tv side were they surprised about how well received this show is, has, has been especially in terms of award seasons i i think from the the, the nickelodeon side and the tv side they love their sponge as we love our sponge and um he is you know one of the only characters globally that is recognized on an ongoing basis. I think the, the three most recognized silhouettes are Mickey Mouse, SpongeBob, and Bugs Bunny globally. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's just something that in, inherent in the spirit of the television show we've been able to capture that we're now turning people who may love SpongeBob the musical into SpongeBob TV fans and creating a real ecosystem, which is really exciting. Um, so I think that they there was probably from the corporate level always, you know, a belief in the character obviously in doing this and a hope that, that people that didn't know the TV show would embrace it. I think that um, what has thrilled me most of all as a creative producer on this project was, yeah, 12 is a great number. Love it. Um, it's great to be the most nominated new musical across all the awards season in the entire season. Awesome as well. But, but, but having each individual element recognized is really special because this show has been a community collaboration, you know, led by Tina and her vision and for everyone to, to have their work recognized is so thrilling and heartening. And I would say to the team before we would do these, these presentations and labs and workshops and all of this, we would get together and we'd have a moment and I'd say, you know, guys, we've done what we said we were going to do at this juncture, right? We've explored whatever it was. And frankly, I'm so proud that we've done what we said we were going to do. They will either like it or they won't, but we've done what we said we were going to do. And that's the same way I kind of feel about about the audience, right? We've said we were going to put this amazing show out there and it's either going to be embraced, which it has been, or it's not, but we've done our work. And sure. the greatest thing about the vision, Tina's vision for this show is we were all doing her show. We were all, everyone from the top to bottom was supporting that version of the show. And so everyone, their work was in service of that. And I think that's where 
kind of the unanimous recognition comes into play. Is that we know that the lighting design and the sound design and the scenic design and the costume design and the orchestrations, they're all serving one vision for one show that is on stage every night at the palace. Yeah, that's awesome. So all of this recognition, this collaborative teamwork, all of this success, this word of mouth, this ecosystem you're building, has that led Nickelodeon as a company to think about maybe bringing some of their other properties to a more legit theatrical stage anytime in the near future? No. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Rugrats to me screams musical. I don't know about anybody else. No? Nothing? Well, uh no, I mean, the, the thing about SpongeBob, the longevity of SpongeBob is that he's still on air yeah. 20 years later. And so, you know, Rugrats is not currently still building its fan base and, and still, um, you know, it is beloved by a very specific segment of the audience. And I think that's what you were, you were talking about yeah. earlier is that, you know, there is no one segment of a SpongeBob audience. Kind of everyone is a SpongeBob audience. And, and if there were another property that felt like that, that felt... It, zeitgeisty is is too um, kind of dismissive of a word, I think, because it's really about kind of icon status. Yeah. If there was something that felt like that and it was creatively led, I think that there's not an aversion to looking at it and saying, hey, where should we put Property X and is Broadway an, op- an opportunity? But there is no there is no corporate mandate to have Nickelodeon on Broadway. This is a very specific, special property and special show and and really special new creative iteration of a beloved property in a new way. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for Tommy exactly. Pickles and stuff later, I guess. Then. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Congratulations on everything. This is so exciting, and and I'm I'm really pulling for you guys. Next, I spoke with Clint Ramos, who won a Tony two seasons ago for his costume designs for the play Eclipsed. Now working with Michael Arden and the rest of the team on Once on This Island, Ramos helped build a thoroughly engaging and thoughtful world at the Circle in the Square Theater. So I have to start off with congratulations on the Tony nomination. That's uh, super exciting and, and not only just for you, but for once on this island to have eight nominations, I feel like you guys are kind of like this little show that could um, that uh, <laughs> is kind of having this this life that I don't know that everybody anticipated, but is is really captivated a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, the show is very special and the way we're doing it i mean clearly we feel very passionate about it you know i think it's um you know i think it's it's uh uh it's an example of how you can do um a musical in a very sort of honest way you know without uh the usual kind of like belts and whistles that broadway offers but still have that magic um through clever stagecraft you know and just really i think the big the big thing that we wanted to explore was what does it really mean to revive something, you know, to revive something, to bring it back to life and acknowledge, you know, where we are now as a, as a, as a, as a community, as a global community and actually propel it forward from, from when it was last done, you know, and I think that was really important to all of us. 
So how did you guys go about the process, especially on the design side, starting with with Michael Arden, the director, and, and all of the designers that worked on the show? How did you guys sit down and come together about what this show would not just look like, but but feel like because when you're in that theater, it starts from the moment you walk in the door and it's not just you know the fact that there's stuff strewn from the ceilings, but it's the sounds. It's I mean, even in some cases, the smell. Yeah. And if you're close enough to the stage, it's the feeling under your feet. So what were those conversations like and how did you arrive at what eventually happened at Circle in the Square? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think Michael, first of all, he's a visionary, and so he he really thought hard about what this musical means now, you know. And we all know that uh, Haiti now is, is um, I, I, when we started working on this, had been on the Caribbean, had been hit with all these storms, including um, mm-hmm. uh, Puerto Rico, which is still recovering. Um, we wanted to acknowledge that, so that was one thing. And then um, the second thing that was important is that Michael Dane Laff. Uh, set designer and Nikki James uh, went to Haiti um, uh, for a week, I oh, think, wow. and just took all of these took all of these photographs. Uh, Nikki is Haitian American, so she had access to a lot of things down there. But also, I think one of the things that we we looked at was well, really, these storytellers had just gone through a storm. What does that look like now? You know, and we are familiar. The thing is that we are as uh, as a people, as a global community, are so familiar with these images because we see them in the news almost right. uh, too too frequently now because of what we've done to the planet. Um, so I, I think um, all of those kind of uh, informed what our story uh, storyteller world would be, you know, and and I think starting with Dane's um, sort of immersive set, um, setting you in a place that honored that sort of sense of resiliency, but definitely it puts us in a place of 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 uh, a post hurricane place, immediate post hurricane place. And for me, in terms of the costumes, the way to honor those people um, who are our storytellers was to just really depict them accurately. You know, so the first few costumes you see are really plucked from images sure. um, uh, of of hurricane victims, you know, in the Caribbean and mostly in Haiti, you know. So that's sort of like the the impetus, and then everything that came afterwards was just sort of like offshoots of like that central idea, you know. Yeah, and I think the one that people have probably seen a lot of because of the the TV performances that the cast has done is, you know, Alex is wearing, uh, you know, an Atlanta Falcons jersey that's <laughs> beat up and nasty. But you're right; that's something that, as soon as I saw it the first time, I was like, okay, that makes so much sense because that's what we see. After these disasters, their clothes are dirty. They're having to, you know, to go through the ruins of their city and they're going to be in shambles. And and that made perfect sense. So I I love that. But the other thing that I loved about the costumes that you created was that even though in the world that you guys created, these are storytellers telling the story, they would have realistically been in that costume throughout. But their costumes evolve and right. their costumes change and they become bigger, especially with the gods. You know, I'm speaking of the four gods, you know, yeah, when, yeah. as you're trying to see this evolution of what these four individuals look like, how did you decide? Yes, this, you know, Urzuli was going to look like this and Agwe was is going to go in this direction. How did you kind of literally or figuratively piece together what their eventual final costume would look like? 
Right. Well, I think it starts with who they are as storytellers, right? And in that milieu, we became very, uh, I think, um, strict about really uh, finding archetypes for them in this particular milieu. And so Arzuli would, um, as her storytelling, Teller costume was as a as a Doctors Without Borders nurse, mm-hmm. you know. Um, she's handing out like mosquito netting um, to people, uh, and she has a stethoscope, you know, and all of that will play into her costume later. You know, with Agwe, he's a fisherman who lost all of his stuff and is like now rebuilding, like, repainting his boat. You know, uh, uh, Alex. Um, uh, we wanted uh, him to be sort of like this mother figure who is a, a street food vendor, and so you see him cooking in the in the beginning. And then Papa Gay is yeah. probably somebody who lost her mind when the storm happened. Is now living oh, okay. underneath a, tr- a truck, you know, and, and now homeless, and is just left with this one goat that ultimately is going to probably be sacrificed. Right. So I think. Those kind of like um, uh, archetypes helped us because it also helped us with, um, well, okay, if they are these people, then what materials can be used that's within their periphery, that's within their purview, I suppose, that uh, that uh, we can we can manipulate to make their costumes. And so, like, uh, Azuli's costume is completely made out of that mosquito netting and you know, her stethoscope becomes her belt, you know, and um, uh, her headdress becomes the USB wires that were um, discarded where she stations herself, which is by that telephone pole. Um, Agwe paints himself with the blue paint that he, he's painting his boat, you know, and he's um, he's basically cleaned the ocean of all these, like, well, at least the bay of all these plastic bags that he eventually becomes his beard, you know. And But he still yeah. wears the board shorts that, you know, that I, 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 I was very yeah, careful yeah. not to eliminate, you know, uh, all of the stuff that they started with, and then uh, with Asaka, um, that tablecloth of you know his uh, uh, station becomes big sort of ball skirt. So that's like vinyl tablecloth that's ubiquitous in these third world nations. And Papa Gay basically just paints herself with like the motor oil, you know, so she's almost sooty in, in um, black, and um, and um, she creates this sort of spine out of Coca-Cola cans that we see her sort of forlornly collecting in the beginning. So it's it's sort of like that kind of like storytelling. And then the, the challenge was then, well, how do we pace it? So it's clear to the audience that we're actually building these gods, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was one pragmatically the way we did that. But I think conceptually what appealed to us was this idea that um, we could build something out of what was what had been discarded, you know, um, so sort of creating this divinity out of the discarded, which also I think uh, oh, in wow. a sort of really neat way mirrors um, our central character, Timun, who only exists in the, in the fable, really. Uh, she is discarded. She is basically left, um, you know, orphaned. Uh, she's left on a tree. Um, and in the end, she, be- she becomes a goddess, right? She becomes uh, uh, a tree. Um, so that sort of like all kind of like worked in my mind, like I, it kind of fell into place. Like it all just clicked into place the way all of that sort of, th- all of those themes work. Um, and then, you know, we employed different, like, th- then we needed to keep on surprising the audience um, in terms of, of our storytelling. And so, uh, you know, we jump into a different vocabulary of costuming once we go into the bosoms, right. you know, um, and then everything just restores in the very end, you know. So that's that's sort of how we conceived of that, you know. 
Yeah, and I, and I love that idea of the, would you say, the divine from the discarded. That really resonates thinking about this, not only the show itself, but this particular production. That's a that's a really beautiful way to look at it. I, I, I'm kind of re, replaying things in my head from the show uh, with that in mind. <laughs> that's uh, That's great. But another thing that I think a lot of people are really interested in this production for is not just in the fact that um, it's a cast that's completely made up of actors of color, but there's also some, you know, gender fluidity in in the roles. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, you said Papa Gay, but it's played by a, a woman. It was originally Merle Dandridge. Yeah. And you get, we talked about Alex, um, you know, she, he sings the song, you know, Mama Will Provide. So these are things that this show obviously is naturally a, a show that involves a lot of, of actors of color. But to take it that one step further in this production to add in that gender fluidity that really does speak to a representation that we don't often see in shows especially in revivals yeah yeah yeah, i think that's great in a revival because even though there is some you know representation of people of color and some non-traditional casting in carousel and even some you know a little less in my fair lady when we're talking about musical revivals a lot of them are from the golden age and they're just really the same. They're white, you know, and I'm a white guy, you know, so yeah. I can I can acknowledge that it's it's a bunch of white people. And this show yeah, is obviously yeah. different on a lot of levels. And, and and I think that's fantastic. I I loved the show. So, I mean, I, I think that's something that we need to see a little bit more of. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. It is truly uh, the, um, you know, um, of, the, of, the, of the musicals that are open this, this season. I think maybe even the plays that are open this season, uh, revival or otherwise, um, uh, it is a cast com- comprised completely out of people of color. But I think that points towards what I had mentioned earlier about Michael's, you know, sort of like, and the team's fervent desire to really examine what it means to revive something. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think one of the, and, and really acknowledge where we are. And I think that gender fluidity, that, that sort of acknowledgement of re-examining gender and, and, and who and what we perceive to be female and male is put forth as a question to the audience, you know, um, and certainly, you know, certainly you don't, you know, the audience, I, I, I almost look this way. It's the first thing that probably comes into their mind if they're familiar with a musical, having seen our revival, but it's the last thing they think about when they walk out, you know, so it's, it's, it shows to me sort of this great capacity for audiences to appreciate uh, yeah. uh, themes and concepts. And I think m- more often as theater makers, we tend to actually underestimate our audiences. Yeah, that's true because I, you know, you're right. When I think, I saw the show early, early in previews, like the first week or so of previews, and so so much of the oh conversation. God, I'm sorry. No, it was fantastic. <laughs> I actually saw it, and um, I spoke with Leia a couple of weeks ago, and I said I saw it when the group of kids was still in at the end of the show. Yes. Um, yes, yes. So, but when I saw it, very little. We didn't know much because you know not a lot of audience had seen it. So really, all we knew yeah. was what we'd seen from you know some of the the labs or the workshops that were done, but a lot of the conversation right. was about the gender flipped gods. So you go in there yeah. with that at the forefront of your mind. And then, I mean, I don't even know. I, I think by the time the show started, I'd forgotten because of all the stuff that's, that's going right. on. You just don't think about it. It just works. And I think that's a lot to do with Michael's you know, vision, like you keep saying, but just kind of the overall feeling of the show. It's just like, Okay, I completely forgot about it by the time, you know, then when you hear different types of voices singing these songs that, you know, of course, that that kind of comes back a little bit. But overall, it didn't change one iota 
of the story being told, at least for me, it probably did for others. But for me, it was just good people doing a great show. Yeah, I know. I mean, thank you for saying that. It, it doesn't really, you know, if anything, it sort of just enhances it. It creates a little bit of depth, you know, um, uh, and complexity to, to the themes, you know. But, um, you know, ultimately, it, these uh, actors are, you know, it, it's sort of like it's, there are so many levels of like meta theatricality because these are actors who are storytellers and they are telling yeah. the story. You know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> yeah. to inhabit to inhabit characters who are. <laughs> we are supposed yeah. to suspend disbelief that they are gods, that they are, dis- you know, that they are divine, yeah. and and we can't suspend disbelief that uh, you know that they are uh, how we perceive yeah. them originally and what gender they are. Like it's 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 ridiculous, you know. But it's it's actually um, it's a testament to these actors, you know, and 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 how uh, you know, and, and and I think for me, I think what's sort of like remarkable and unsurprising really is that it's 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 um. None of it is disingenuous, you know. It all feels honest uh, in, in these performances that all these actors are providing. You know, it's just it's it. They're just telling a story, you know. Yeah, and and it and it works completely, like you said. So I I did want to ask about uh, one another show that wasn't even eligible for Tony's, but I have so many questions about how you design costumes for Sunday in the Park with George, just because. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> just because, like. In the first act, and obviously a little in the second act, but that first act, like, those have to be exact, don't they? I mean, like, those have to be identical or as much as you can possibly do with a pointillist painting. Like, But those have to be perfect, right? I mean, I, first of all, I don't really know what that means, you know, in terms of like the exact and perfect. You know? yeah. I imagine, like, every time this musical, that musical had been done before we did it, I think on stage it they tried to represent what the actual clothes were, what uh, were, and what um, you know, Syrah was trying to yeah. um, uh, uh, paint. Or you know, it's it's. We think the costuming had always been traditionally what what Syrah was literally seeing, right? Rather so, rather uh, than what he painted, uh, you mean? Right, rather than what he painted. But I I wasn't. I think to me, um, you know, the, the mandate was like, you know, let's let's really embrace this idea of modernity, of breaking barriers, you know, and, and see uh, and sort of follow in a very um, stream of consciousness way, follow his thought process, Surat's thought process you know, in terms of, of creating this painting. And to me, it wasn't I wasn't interested in the historical costumes that these characters could have worn, um, nor was I interested in the painting um, itself in its literal form, the dots and everything. You know, I, I, yeah. I took some um, sort of facets from it, like just using those 11 colors that he used, you know, but I, th- I thought maybe there was something in the way he expected us to participate in the viewing of it, you know, that hmm. he... Um, that by sort of by by doing these dots and by presenting them in such a manner and he left the final step to us right so we assemble it and it becomes whole and i thought maybe there's a way to do that with a costuming that you know if i just somehow set up clues drop clues then the audience can actually assemble 
the musical itself, right? And 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 so to me that meant like, well, can I actually do these, you know, without using any period clothing, you know, um, uh, cutting all these garments in sort of modern patterns, uh, and, and at times actually using modern pieces, like contemporary pieces, and just sort of like assembling them and, and uh, or, or putting them together. Um, and then actually <laughs> use the same no pun costume. intended. Putting them together, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and using the same costumes in, in in either a state of undress or a state of dress for the 1980s, right? Um, and so that, I got excited about that sort of that proposition that I, I made to myself, like, hey, you know, let's see where that takes you, and. You know, I mean, all of the costumes there were like all modern clothing, you know, um, uh, and the stuff that we built were all cut out of modern patterns. You know, there were, it was not a single piece of um, trim or lace or boning or anything, uh, no corsetry except for that scene with Annalie. Um, and Jake doesn't change. He wears the same suit throughout. Um, and, and so, you know, by adding a hat, we're plunged into the past by removing that hat and that jacket. We're actually in the future. Um, so, you know, that sort of yeah. like um, excited me. And I just sort of like proceeded to follow that that thought pattern. You know, I mean, I'm sure it made, um, I'm not sure, but I'm positive it made all of the um, the original creators a little nervous, but I think they were uh, <laughs> ultimately happy in the end. I, I remember James Lapine asking me if Aaron Davies' dress was finished. <laughs> I said it was. <laughs> he thought it was. He said, is, he said is it, isn't there a, a shawl or a, a piece of lace that goes on top of there? Like, her shoulders are bare. Where's the rest of it? And I said, well, that's what it is. <laughs> but I think you know, I, and I think I think what what to me was satisfying was seeing when you know the the painting um, that tableau put together with the clothing that I proposed, and still get that satisfaction that you get that you you know you traditionally get from that musical when that moment happens. Um, you know, that, I think that was that was really satisfying, and and in a way, you know, in a sort of small way, I was able to prove a theory. You know much much like Surratt was I suppose <laughs> I'm not that I'm comparing you to him not that I'm putting that pressure on you but uh but uh, you know I think it, uh there's a there's a little bit of a, a symbiosis there yeah but that's what he meant I think and that's what Lapine and and and, and Sondheim meant you know like see like participate in seeing you know like it, it's almost um you know when you really look at it it's so beautiful because he's actually asking us to be better human beings right by participating like <laughs> by, by, but he is expecting us he is he 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 knows we have something better in us you know by completing the picture ourselves you know what I mean that it's not that he's just yeah. not, like he 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 um I don't know. I think there's something so beautiful about that, about like really overestimating what a human being can do, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love, I love, I love Sunday in the park. So I love this even more. So that's fantastic. So um, I'll, I'll get you out of here. Cause I, I, and I'm sure you've got tons of stuff to do, but my, my last question is thinking about not just once on this Island um, and, and kind of the, de- from the design element there, but as you guys were discussing, what the message of this production was not necessarily the show and what the story being told is, but what was it that you wanted people as a group or you as individual, as they walked out of that theater, what did you want them taking with them? Whether it was something, you know, from the perspective that Michael laid out, or was it something from the story? Just if I go to the circle in the square and walk out, what do you hope stays with me the most? 
I think this idea that humanity is complex, right? That indeed, these truths um, that we hold dear are indeed truths for a reason, right? And that indeed, what we believe still applies in spite of how um, we've messed up this world, you know, <laughs> that love indeed will conquer all if we just truly believe in it. And I know it's sort of Pollyannish, but I think what's wonderful about the production is you you reflect on that, but you inevitably have seen it through a, a very complex prism of politics, of of gender, you know, of race and all of it. You know, we wanted um, to to depict these people as uh, complex human beings that, you know, adversity like this does not happen in a vacuum, that we are all part of this. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's... Um, um, if there was a message uh, to send out to the audience is that we are responsible and we are part of this, you know? Yeah. And that's interesting that both you're talking about in once on this Island, the audience and everybody being a part of it. That's what you just said about Sunday in the park, both, you know, the painting and the show is that that participatory element of those art pieces raises them to some level because the audience is more invested in that. They just sat back in their chair and relaxed in and let it wash over them. No, I mean, that's exactly, I think that's what theater is supposed to do, you know, you're supposed yeah. to be part of it, you know what I mean? Like, I think it only is complete if you participate. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about the, no, the show and congratulations again. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, just between you and me, I'll be rooting for you guys on the tent. So, oh, oh, thank uh, you. Knock on <laughs> some wood you for so you. Much. Moving from Tony Nominees to someone who has interviewed many of the season's brightest stars from on and off stage, Victoria Myers and her team over at The Interval regularly provide some of the most insightful profiles of theater makers that you will find anywhere. One of their stated goals is to change the conversation around women in theater by asking smart ladies smart questions for a smart audience. Now, um, I'm not sure that I gave her any smart questions in return, but her responses were nonetheless fantastic. I know that you and a lot of your staff have interviewed a lot of the women that are nominated in, in a lot of the categories, but specifically in the performance categories this season. Is there a moment or a nugget of information or, or maybe a two or three from those interviews that really stand out to you that as being something that uh, was, was really insightful or really special that you were able to learn? Here's something that I think it's true of a lot of the women that we've interviewed, because uh, you're right, we've been very lucky to be able to talk to a lot of them and across um, different disciplines, which is always great. And I think one of the things, particularly because you mentioned the performance categories, is I feel like a big issue for Broadway has been that they kind of haven't given voice enough to the actresses, which seems so ridiculous because you think about it, and I think particularly for yeah. musical theater, women so are like the face of that. Like if you were to ask a casual theater goer to name, you know, 10 Broadway stars who actually work in theater and aren't just, you know, coming to do a play for yeah. film or TV, particularly in musical theater, they're going to name mostly women. And kind of at the same time, despite the fact that those women are so the face of the industry in certain ways, there's been a real way where they haven't had the voice that I think they should. I think one of the things that you've seen this season from the women 
and the actresses, you know, especially in the musicals, is you have people who have opinions and are articulate and are perfectly fine expressing those opinions and, you know, are very much wanting to do so. And I think for so long, they weren't asked necessarily thought-provoking questions. And I think one of the changes that you're really seeing, and this has been happening now for a while, or a few years, seasons anyway, is that you get kind of more and more women who are pushing back and really want to see and it's like, no, I'm an integral part of the show and I should be treated like that. You know, I'm not just here to get up and sing some songs and deliver some dialogue. I have thoughts and perspective and this show would not happen without me in the same way. And I think also the fact that they're being asked more questions, but also it feels a little bit more. And I think this has been going on for a few seasons now where they're pushing back a little bit too, and are willing to, or not willing is the wrong word, but I think maybe are becoming more and more comfortable or demanding that they're allowed to kind of take up more space in press and in relation to the shows and kind of what goes on outside of the shows. So that's kind of a general answer. And I think another thing that, you know, stands out to me this season, and for instance, we interviewed Tina Landau, who is the only uh, female director nominated for a direction of a musical. And I think in that interview, one of the things that's really clear is how deeply thoughtful she is about craft. And I think that's something that a lot of times in interviews uh, with women, particularly women who are on the creative side of things, they're asked sometimes to talk a lot about kind of being a woman and the whole craft part gets left out of the conversation. Whereas men, you know, they get to talk about what they do in their job and how they do it. Um, And I think it's really important that women do that too. So I think when you have somebody like Tina, who is very articulate and can really go into like, this is how the thing was made, that that's really important, not only for her, but also for the people reading it, both women who might want to go into theater, but also just audiences members for them to be able to see that, you know, these women are really smart, talented and work really hard. Yeah, I'm going to we're going to talk about Tina here in a little bit, because I've got some questions about about her because she's fantastic. Um, But I think that what you mentioned about women not getting the voice, even though they're kind of at the center of a lot of what we think about in musical theater, I think that's a lot of, you know, I think that's very analogous to the fact that for generations, pretty much for the entire history of of Broadway, we've specifically seen stories by men and more specifically white men. And even though they might be writing stories for women, they're very much from a male perspective. When you think of Gypsy and, and Hello, Dolly, some of the iconic women in musical theater are written by men. This season, and, and I think it's a little dangerous and maybe disingenuous to say that one year makes a trend or is a sign of progress, but since we're talking about this season specifically, I'm going to do it anyway. But we do see in a lot of the writing categories, it, it is pretty much 50-50 male and female on the musical side. You know, the amalgamation that is the score of SpongeBob makes that a little difficult to calculate. But then the plays, two of the five were written by women. And of course, it's hard to discount J.K. Rowling's, you know, impact on Cursed Child, even though she's not technically the author. So do you think that there's as you've said, some of the women who as performers are starting to to express a little bit more of their agency in, in these articles, is there something from the structural side of Broadway and commercial theater in general that can kind of have a positive impact on changing the arc of this specific history and, and, and to make it so where the voices 
that are being seen on stage match up with what's actually happening for the people who are creating those voices as well? Well, I think that's a complicated question because I think so much of Broadway and theater is so deeply entrenched in the way that it has been done. The change is very, very slow to happen. And, you know, I think in terms of women, we've been seeing this now for a few seasons where people will be like, why aren't there more women? Why aren't there more women? And the change has still been so gradual with that, that, you know, kind of the obvious answer is, well, you know, hire them. Um, and I think particularly, you know, <laughs> hire more female directors when you're direct, you know, when you have a big musical revival or a big revival of a play or a new musical or a new play um, and look at work by women. And yet, you know, people keep saying that and it's not really happening or when it does happen, it's happening very slowly. So I think, you know, it's time to get in there and have some more con- more nuanced conversations about like, well, okay, why why are we still having these conversations every season where it seems like really very little is changing and everybody kind of says the same thing and progress is still so slow. Cause I think, you know, it's not like, and I think particularly with female directors, it's not like the directors aren't there. Like there are plenty of women out there who I have no doubt, you know, could direct. And to be perfectly blunt, you know, I would say, all of, or if not the majority of shows that are on Broadway right now that have been directed by men, there's a women, woman who could probably do it just as well. Not necessarily all of them, because I don't want to, like, yeah. you know, not treat people like unique individuals. But if you want a really honest and blunt answer, you know, the women are there. Yeah. Um, and they're just not getting the opportunities. And I think why that is is complicated, because so many decisions are just made by, like, five people in a room. And I think, you know, how those decisions are made, I don't necessarily know. I think for the directors who are probably most, sorry, I'm focusing a little on directors because I feel like that's an area, well, I feel like that's an area that should be focused on, especially when you talk about kind of how work has been interpreted because so much of that comes from the director. But I think particularly for the generation of female directors who are probably most in that group where they might be getting the meetings but not getting the jobs or their names are kind of floated around but they're still not getting the jobs or the people who are kind of most capable of doing these things where a lot of people would be like, well, there's no risk in that whatsoever. I don't know why the producers see it as a risk. I think a lot of those women kind of came up in a system that was different than what it is now, even though it wasn't that long ago, but I think for directors who are, you know, in their forties and their fifties, kind of the path up needs to be examined of kind of what things happened along the way that have maybe put them at a disadvantage right now for getting those jobs and why they're not necessarily in the same boys club as some of these other directors, male directors. And I think there are a lot of small things that contribute to that but they add up to a very big problem. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it still goes back to, if you want to fix it, you just have to hire women. I think the other thing in terms of, because you work for a media company and so do I, has to do with the media surrounding theater, which has been overall very much biased towards men. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of emphasis on reviews and critics. And I think, you know, that's good and warranted, but I think that also has ignored the entire other side of it, which is feature writing and all of that. 
And for me, I actually view that as being a bigger problem. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about men being rewarded for potential and women not being. And I think that also happens in terms of, you know, who gets the profile in the New York Times, who gets the profile in the New Yorker, and what words are used to describe that person. And I think there's a big difference between who gets that media attention and then what type of language is used. Like an example that I have from the interval is in 2015, when Fun Home was nominated um, and was going to make history, and particularly Janine Tesori making history, and Janine's somebody who has had, you know, an unparalleled career for a woman in musical theater, that we would kind of tweet something about her or we would do something, you know, on her. And that seemed very much in proportion to what was about to happen, which was that she was going to make history and that she had done something that, you know, had not been done before by a woman, which was a very big deal. And very quickly, people were sort of like, oh, that's a little biased. Don't you think it's too much, Janine? Isn't this getting a little, like, too much, too creepy? And yet at the same time, there are many men that the New York Times has run things on practically every week. And, you know, we don't think of that as being weird or different. We think of that as being normal because it's like, oh, well, sure, a man is a genius and sure, a man gets a lot of praise and shouldn't we be paying attention? Whereas when it's a woman, it makes people very, very uncomfortable. And in terms of, to go to your questions of like practical things that people can do, I think a big thing is to just look at how we talk about women in the press when they're in the public eye when they're doing creative work, because I think there's just such a big chasm between the way men and women are talked about. But I think in terms of just for your average person who is listening and is like, what can I do? One of the things that I talk about a lot is that there's a difference between disliking sexism and liking women. And I think there are a lot of people who are very happy to like tweet and go on Facebook and express their dislike of sexism. But so often I'll like look at the same people like their Twitter feeds or whatever on a daily basis. And next to never do you see them tweet anything positive about a woman. Like you'll never see like, Oh, I saw this play by so-and-so it was great. Or, you know, there's this director who's a woman who I love or ignoring the part that it's a woman, you know, just use their name. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like a big thing. Cause at the end of the day, theater companies want to hire people who they think are popular and who they think people think are good because it's a very risk adverse uh, industry, not just in a financial sense, but also everybody is waiting for somebody to be validated by somebody else. So I think if more people just made a point of, if you, you know, it's like, if you see something, say something, only (laughs) you also have to say something if you see something positive. Yeah. So, you know, if you're like, you know, if you like SpongeBob, Try giving Tina Landau some credit for that. Um, And I think women tend not to get credit, especially publicly, and that there really is a disparity about the way, you know, women are talked about, particularly by your average person. Well, not necessarily average person, but certainly a large sector of like theater, Twitter, theater, social media, whatever that is, that they just, you know, they're willing to throw heaps and heaps of praise on men and they just don't do it for women. And, you know, if you want to see a woman direct a show or a show that you saw that you think should move or be picked up by another theater company, like tweet the theater company and tell them. 
if you wish Lee Silverman was directing Kiss Me Kate, tweet roundabout. <laughs> Nothing yeah. bad is going to happen to you. Yeah. Well, that's and that's really interesting because so much of the time we when we have questions like this, it's, well, there needs to be more female producers in the room, the decision makers. But you're right there. That's really one of those things where you can say it, but then there's really no impetus on you as a person to actually have any involvement in making any changes. It, I, I love the, the way that you say that as an audience member or as a theater lover, you have some power in this. It might not be the ultimate power, but your voice is more powerful than you think. So I, I, I really love that. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I think, but that is important. And it's true. Like, it's very easy to feel powerless. I feel it all the time where you just feel like you're shouting into a, you know, a dark room where no yeah. one hears you. Um, or, you know, in my case, like screaming at my cat who does not care. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. the least you can do is try. And tweeting about something takes all of five seconds and people do it, you know, about what they ate for lunch. It's yeah. just not that difficult. I mean, and not to kind of overplay, because I think there's also a big difference between like how people present themselves on social media than in real life um, in terms of how much they care about things. But, you know, again, if you're going to tweet about men you love, you can certainly throw some women in there. And if you're going to be upset that a theater company is doing a season that has too many white men, you can also, you know, if there's a theater company that is programming in a way that you like to make that known too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I have a feeling we could talk about these kind of things for a long time and I could just sit here and listen to what you have to say, but let's, let's move forward a little bit because we mentioned Tina Landau and it, I think the success that SpongeBob has had both from an award standpoint and just from an artistic span standpoint has been one of the, the most exciting things for me this season because Tina Landau is kind of like this revolutionary pillar of the avant-garde theater uh, community. And to see her name attached with something that, like you kind of mentioned, uh, is is a kind of a commercial existing property like SpongeBob really was the first thing that made me take notice of this show and be like, oh, this might not be just drivel and, and dreck. And I know you interviewed her uh, early in the year. And when I read it, one of the things that really stuck out to me as being especially poignant based off the type of shows that she does, but also being a female director in general, is that she said she's often drawn to shows about outsiders or people who who don't fit in and who are always trying to kind of be themselves. When, when you look at Tina Landau being, as you mentioned, the only woman director uh, nominated in the musical category this year, what impact is seeing someone like her, who comes from a very non-commercial standpoint, have on maybe giving some people some the impetus to maybe think outside the box, not only in terms of, of gender, but also in the background of directors to try to give people who weren't in that pipeline of a boys club thing that you mentioned an opportunity to to tackle some of these works that we see not only on broadway but in in major commercial theaters as well i mean hopefully it does um i definitely hope that it does i think you know like what you're saying what's so interesting about spongebob is so many people and i put myself in this category where like spongebob the musical really like <laughs> yeah you know, exactly yeah like, there's no hell I am seeing that and then you're right when she signed on it was like well that's an interesting choice and you know the cynical side of you is always at first like well I hope 
she likes the apartment that buys her. Yeah, you know, she's selling um, out. Yeah, that's the is, first thing. Way, you think. Yeah, totally fine. But here's, I do want to say a thing like that, which is, I think there's, even though I just said it, <laughs> one of the things that I feel like I felt a little or seen a little is that sometimes when women do do big budget stuff, because so many of them are coming from the off-Broadway world or the nonprofit world, that people are very quick to jump all over them. And I think this happens like particularly in their social circle where it's harder to block out to be like, oh, you're selling out. That's bad. What happened to your values? And I don't think men get that same type of thing ever. And I think it's fine as a woman to want to make money and to be ambitious that way and to want to do something that is big and expensive and, you know, to want the big and expensive apartment that it might buy you. Not that anyone in theater or at least, you know, very few people on the creative side make any money. But I do just because I said the thing, want to point that out. Yeah, it seems ridiculous that you even have to say that because of, of, of course it's people want to make money and do the most that they can in their career. But it, but you're absolutely right. There definitely is a double standard when it comes to things like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think particularly in theater, too, because I think we've so like romanticized the idea of the starving artist, which I think is so destructive to so many people. Because all it really does is, like, keep the status quo. The only people who can afford to do it are the people who are independently wealthy or, have, you know, have other means of income. But anyway, to get back to your original question. <laughs> um, so I kind of came in with the same amount of bias. And then I knew people who were seeing the show. And they're like, no, it's really good. And I was like, I do not believe that. <laughs> um, and then I went and I was like, oh, they're right. You know, it's really clever, really creative, and a really smart blend of kind of modernity with also, I think, a lot of the stuff that makes theater special and unique. So I do hope that hopefully that does make it so people will think of people who might not, in their minds, be the obvious choice. So let's wrap this up here. And this is a a question that's not really Tony-related, but... This year has been really painful and, and challenging for a lot of people, especially women in well, in all walks of life, but for our discussion in the entertainment industry. But hopefully it's also been a bit, I don't know, validating or eye-opening and, and maybe even cathartic. Um, what do you see or what do you hope to see from all of the revelations about sexual assaults and misconduct and the ingrained predatory behavior of people in power, specifically in the arts and in theater, and then all of the resulting Me Too and Time's Up movements that followed it. Do you do you hope to see, are you optimistic that there will be some sort of course correction in specifically our community? Um, I mean, nobody has ever accused me of being an optimist. Fairly noted. And okay. I'm not optimistic here. <laughs> yeah. And I mean... You know, and I'm not optimistic. I think theater really has not dealt with any of this. I think theater has kind of been sticking its head in the sand and just not dealing with it in any way. I, you know, um, I think if anything, there's a lot to me that feels a little bit like actually what's going to happen is that things are going to become even more entrenched in the way they are because it'll be kind of, a little bit of a very superficial kind of like, oh, a very superficial kind of conversation about all this. And that all that's really going to do is keep the people who are in power in power, Um, especially because I think one of the things in so many of the Harvey Weinstein stories, some of these other stories have to do with all the enablers. 
And I think the theater has a lot of those. I personally have not heard stories about, you know, rape and some of that stuff. There are a lot of stories about abuse of power, though, um, and a lot of stories about abuse of power directed at women that are certainly out there. But I think at the same time, by out there, I mean things that people are saying to their best friend, and that's it, or keeping to themselves, um, and in some cases a little bit more known. But I think so much of that is very much enabled by a system of people. Um, that allow things to stay as they are, people to act the way they are. I think a lot of it in theater stems from the fact that the economic system is so entrenched and very different, and a lot of people don't understand it. And it's very hard to kind of use the economics to help you in any way, whereas I think with the Harvey Weinstein situation, a lot of it is because, you know, the film and TV industry has changed, and there's not so much a monopoly on distribution and production in the way that there was. That is not true in theater at all. You know, it's a very yeah. controlled. It's controlled by a small number of people. It's very hard to in any way say, you know what? I made this show a success. I am worth something. And I am worth something monetarily to you. So I need you to pay attention to me when I say this. You know, that for theater people, I don't think exists. And that makes it difficult. Uh, I think a lot of the systems that are in place are designed not to protect the people at all, but to protect the show because the show is ultimately the product. And in order for shows to make money on Broadway, you need them to run for, you know, years, yeah. which is longer than most people are going to stay with them. Well, let me, let me mm -hmm. ask this question, just to be clear. You're, when you say protect the show, you're talking more from like a liability standpoint rather than when you're protecting people actually caring about them as human beings is what you mean. Yeah, and also in the sense that I think because of that, it doesn't behoove the industry in a way to really make people, give people the agency and the autonomy and the power to really be able to stand up and say, or to stand up with very little risk to themselves and say, either this happened to me, this happened to somebody else, and I think it's wrong, and I'm taking a stand here, um, and to do that without risk to their careers because however powerful we might think certain creative people are, certain actors are, the truth is they're really not. And they're really beholden to a lot of people. All of which is a long way to say that I'm not optimistic because I just think the system is going to protect the system. And without people really being aggressive and a lot of people really wanting change, I don't think anything will. Um, and I think if anything... Broadway is actually more at risk of covering things up. Um, I would be happy to be wrong about all of this. <laughs> sure, of course. But yeah. I haven't seen, there's very little that has made me optimistic. Because I also just think, you know, we, we had done interviews in the past where people had brought up sexual harassment, you know, long before this year. And they just brought it up either from their own experience or just things in that area. And, you know, nobody ever thought to follow up with them, as far as I know. So this stuff has been out there. And, I mean, that's one of the things I think you're hearing with, like, the Harvey and all these other things. People are paying attention now, but it didn't just start. And I just feel like in theater, people aren't even paying attention, particularly. Yeah. So that's my pessimistic answer to that. Well, we really know how to uh, end an interview on a down note, don't we? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but overall, um, I, I, I've been really 
I've, I've loved all of the, the stuff that you've uh, you've mentioned here. I think it's so easy for us to get into a, a, a very focused bubble thinking about the shiny, glossy parts of theater, especially during the awards season. And that's often the performances and the, the songs and all this stuff. And we forget about a lot of the underlying processes that for in a lot of ways are, are just either broken or purposely built to the advantage of certain people. And, and I think at this time of year is really when we have the most eyes on the community that we really should be talking about a lot of these things. Yeah. I mean, here's something positive I can give you to end on. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's just related to everything. It's I do think right now, one of the things that I've certainly sensed from a lot of women in the community is that like, there is a lot of anger and I think anger can actually be very productive towards change. Yeah. And even though anger from women can be very scary to people, and like I would include other women in the category, people can be scared from that. At the same time, I really do think that there are certainly some women in this community who are really fed up and I think are looking to make positive changes. You know, whether they will have a lot of support in that or be able to is another question. But I do think that there are some you know, very exceptional people who want to do the right thing and want to help make the community better and have been very um, engaged lately. So that's a little bit more positive. Finally, in this 2018 Broadway Radio Tony Omnibus episode, I want to get my predictions for Sunday Night Ceremony officially on the record. I will give you my picks for the biggest awards here, but we'll publish my guesses in every category in the show notes and at broadwayradio.com. Take a look and let me know where you think I'm right and inevitably wrong. Starting first in the direction categories, I'll go with John Tiffany for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And in the musical category, this is a tough one, but I think I'm going to have to go with David Cromer from The Band's Visit. In the featured performer categories, I will go with Nathan Lane in the actor in a play category, Denise Goff in actress in a play, Lindsay Mendez for Actress in a Musical, and against my better judgment, I'm going to go with Gavin Lee from Spongebob. In the leading performer categories, I've got Andrew Garfield and Glenda Jackson for plays, and Katrina Link and Ethan Slater for musicals. New York Times' straw poll be damned. (laughs) Then, in the production categories, these are mostly foregone conclusions, but I have the favorites, Angels in America, My Fair Lady, although I'd love the Once on This Island upset to happen, Harry Potter, and The Band's Visit. As I said, I will have picks for all 26 categories in the show notes in case you need a cheat sheet for your Tony's pool. However, I cannot be held liable for any monies that you lose based on these picks. I'm not even confident enough in my predictions to put money on them, so maybe you shouldn't either. If you would like to hear me go in-depth on a lot of these categories, for the second year in a row, I was a guest on the Blake and Sal Show podcast on Friday to discuss the Tony's. I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well in case you want to check it out. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can also find information for the guests and shows that we talked to and about in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced by me. Special thanks to Susan Vargo, Megan Sover, Clint Ramos, Brittany Ty, Victoria Myers, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marina. Thanks again for listening, and remember, Hero is our middle name. Always get a second scoop, and when you get a chance, ask people to tell you more.